Father, we just come to you and with the great news that we have been given in this text that we're going to look at today, that, Lord, that you have saved us to the very uttermost. Lord, I'm incapable of, of totally explaining what that means, but, Lord, I just know that by your Spirit that we can come to an understanding of what that means. Lord, that, that we're saved forever in Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And I just ask today that as, as we go through our study, Lord, that you just ensure uh, everyone in here in their hearts of, of their eternal security that they have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I just ask that you, you just bless this study in a powerful way uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago when I was pastor in New Orleans, I was, I was in a deacon's meeting and we were going over potential candidates for the office of deacon and there was this one name that came up and, and uh, this particular person, you know, I, I knew he was a shoe-in because he, he had outstanding Christian character and I, I just knew there was no problems with getting him elected as a deacon. And, and so uh, we were going through the process and somebody stood up and said, so-and-so can't be a deacon in our church. And I said, what? He said, he can't be a deacon in our church. And I said, why? He said, well, he speaks in tongues. And, and as Baptists, we don't believe in the gift of tongues. We believe that that ceased uh, with the death of the apostles. And I, at that time, I didn't have the gift of tongues. And I know uh, nobody in the church had the gift of tongues. But I understood what the Bible had to say about the gift of tongues. And so I... I said, let's, let's look at this biblically. So I took them to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I read the very last thing that Paul has to say about tongues, and this is it. Forbid not to speak in tongues. And I, I said, There's, that, has, that mandate has not been reversed anywhere in Scripture, so how in the world can you say that this man can't be a deacon because he speaks in tongues? And he says, well, I don't care what the Bible says. As Baptists, we believe that the gift of tongues has ceased. You see the problem there? Now, to, to the credit of that church, that man did get nominated for deacon, and he did get elected deacon, and he served there as deacon for years, so I'm not putting down that church or that denomination. At least he was, they were open to allowing that to happen. But, but you see the problem. The problem there is that you're, when someone allows their traditions to trump the truth of God, uh, you know, you can get into all sorts of problems doing that, and that's exactly what was happening here. You know, religious traditions are really hard to break. I know a lot of y'all come out of various denominations, and, and those traditions that we pick up in those denominations, and hopefully we kind of try to stay away from traditions here. You can't help it sometimes. But those traditions are really hard to break, aren't they? I mean, we're, 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 we, we just, especially religious traditions. Well, that was the problem the author of Hebrews was having uh, with these Jewish Christians. I mean, they were steeped in religious traditions. And, uh, and because of that, they were having a really difficult time grasping the truths of the New Testament. And, and so... Uh, you can understand why. I mean, uh, actually, when you look at Christianity versus Judaism, there's a radical difference. In fact, whenever Christianity was preached to the Jews, 
I mean, and I'm not talking to Jewish Christians, but to the Jews in general, I mean, they got angry. They got enraged. You remember when, you remember when uh, Stephen was martyred, what they shouted. They said, this man does not seek to speak blasphemies, blasphemous words against the temple and against the law. For we have heard this man, Jesus of Nazareth, say that he will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses forever. Now, those accusations weren't exactly right. That really wasn't true. Jesus wasn't seeking to destroy the temple. He was speaking of his body when he was speaking of the destruction of the temple. He wasn't speaking out against the law. Jesus said, hey, this, not one yod or one tittle of this law will pass away until all things are fulfilled. But he was advocating some radical change, a, a radical depart, departure from Judaism, and that's what the author of Hebrews is teaching here. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but he's been teaching some pretty radical things. I mean, first of all, this idea that Jesus is the very image of God. He is God Almighty in the flesh. And then he taught us that, he, he, and we're going to see that, as, especially in the rest of the book of Hebrews, that the new covenant is a much better covenant than the old covenant. And, and, and because the new covenant does away with the law and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, if you're a believer, it does away with all of those things. That's pretty radical. And, and uh, he also is teaching that uh, by the law, nobody can be justified. You can never have a relationship with God through the law because nobody can keep the law. And to the Jew, that was an affront because they felt they were keeping the law. And then the last claim that he made was probably the one that got the Jew the most, and that was that through, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, you can actually enter into the very presence of God behind the veil. You can actually live in the very presence of God. I mean, I mean, those Jews, that just, that just blew them away. You mean to tell me that, that you can live in the very presence of God? I mean, you've got to be kidding. No one can live in the presence of God. God is so holy that they wouldn't even speak his name. And you're saying that you can be a friend of God? You can be a child of God? And so these were some pretty bold, amazing claims that this author of Hebrews was making. And so you can understand why he was having a hard time uh, getting through to, to these Jews. So, so what he does, and, here, and, and, and he's going to make his argument and what he's done in the last couple of chapters, and he's going to kind of finish it up now. And, and I don't know if you've noticed it. We've been through some pretty tough stuff in the book of Hebrews. He's made some pretty scary warnings. But those warnings aren't for you. Those warnings, unless you're an unbeliever, you're here today and you're an unbeliever, those warnings are for unbelievers. But now he's going to get to the really good stuff. The stuff that applies, if you're a really, truly born again, he's got some really good news for you. And so, so what he does to make this argument, he goes to this character Melchizedek, who I believe, and I think I've proven to you there, if, through Scripture, that there's no doubt that he is the, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the incarnate great high priest. That's the only difference. It's the same person. One is pre-incarnate and one is incarnate. One is in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Of course, Melchizedek was in the flesh too, but he was pre-incarnate in the flesh. Now, so he uses Melchizedek because 
when Melchizedek came on the scene to bless Abraham, he, this guy came and he gives Abraham this great blessing, and most of all, just the very blessing of being in the presence of God. When he came and he gave him, the, gave him this blessing, was there a law? Had the law been given at that point? No. So here's Abraham, who's a friend of God, who basically lives in the very presence of God, and he didn't do it by law because there was no law. How did he do it? By through faith. And so that's why he uses this character of Melchizedek to make his case, that that's how the only way that any of us can approach God, and that is through faith. And, and so when, Mel, when Abraham sees Melchizedek, he's seeing a man who is without father, look at Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days or end of life, but made to appear like the Son of God, and he remains a priest forever. He remains a priest continually. That can be nobody else but who? God Almighty. And so he's showing these Christian Jews that they come into the presence of God the same way. Look back at verse number 6 of Hebrews, chapter, I mean chapter 6. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. And look back there and look at those last two verses of Hebrews chapter 6 and listen to what he says. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. How do we enter the presence behind the veil? He says, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus Christ having become our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So see, he's using Melchizedek to show them that Abraham entered into a relationship with God through a great high priest, and we're to enter through the great high priest, and actually that great high priest is the same person. It's none other than Jesus Christ, either Jesus Christ incarnate or Jesus, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Now, because Jesus is God, because he is our great high priest, because he's of the order of Melchizedek, the order of God and not the order of man, he can do something for us that the human priest could never do. He can take us into the very presence of God, uh, something the sacrificial system couldn't do, something the, the uh, uh, Levitical priesthood couldn't, couldn't do, and he can save us to the very uttermost. And that's the case that he's going to make today now as we come to chapter number 7. Let's pick up where we left off last time in verse number 11. And listen to what he says He said here. He says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, which came under the law, for under, for under it the people received the law, it came under law, what further need was there of another priest who should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, the order of God instead of the order of men? And not in the order of law, and not be called according to the order of Aaron. There wouldn't be a need for another high priest. If Aaron and, and his descendants could have done the job through the sacrificial system, if all of our sins could have been paid for through the sacrificial system, then there wouldn't have been a need for Jesus to die on the cross. Do you think Jesus relished the idea of dying on a cross? The Bible's clear, if there'd been any other way than the cross to save us from our sins, then, then, then that way would have been chosen. If the law could have saved us from our sins, then, then the law would have been the way we were saved from our sins. How many people were saved by the law? 
Zero. Nobody was saved by the law. Why? Because our sin has infinite consequences. And there are an infinite number of sins. Man, I, you know, people who tell me they, they've got this thing down where they, they can confess their sins at the end of the day, I don't think they understand what sin really is. I mean, you, you realize how many sins you have probably committed since the time you were born? I mean, go back and just remember the big ones, and you probably can't count them up. But just think of every evil thought that you've had. I mean, every bad, bad word that you've said. I mean, just think of all those things. Then multiply that times the number of people in this room. Then multiply that times the number of people in Lafayette and the number of people in, in this world today and then the number of people who have lived in this world throughout history. And you have an infinite number of sin, sins with infinite consequences. So the blood, there's not enough blood of bull and goats to take away that sin. There had to be an infinite sacrifice. And that had to come from an infinite God. It had to come from a high priest, uh, not according to the order of men, but according to the order of Melchizedek, it, the order of God. And it had to be Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Now, how was the priesthood changed? And how was the law changed? Well, in 70 A.D., you know what happened to the temple? It was destroyed. You know, one of the questions, if, if I'm in a debate with Jews about their, how they handle sin, you know, one of the things I, I'll ask a Jew, how are you handling your sin? I mean, what, how are you paying for your sin? Well, well we, do it, uh, we do it through uh, uh, the, the sacrificial system. I said, there is no sacrificial system. You have no temple. The temple was destroyed. You can't make sacrifices for your sin. So you can't cover your sin. You can't even cover your sin. Less long, put it away. And, and because the temple and the, was done away with, the sacrificial system was done away with, and the priesthood was done away with. But here's the real catch. He says, he says because there was a change in the priesthood, there also had to be a change in the law. What was the change in the law? Did it get stiffer or did God get a little more lenient? What was the change in the law? The law ended. The law was put away. For if you believe in Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 14, I quote that all the time, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. The priesthood has ended and the law has ended. How in the world could the law end? How in the world? What, what happened that caused the law to end? Well, we've been studying that in Colossians chapter 2. So go with me back just a few books to the book of Colossians. Now, I had you all riled up last week. Uh, had you amening and saying uh, hallelujah and come on. Let me tell you what. The stuff we're getting today, if this doesn't get you out of your seat, and, and, and say it amen, and nothing's going to do it. I, I, you know, I don't, I, 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 man, I go over this, this text, and I'm like, man, hallelujah. Abe, I can't believe, Lord, you've done this for me. Well, he's done it for you, too. <laughs> so, so here we go. Y'all ready? We're going to get into this now. And you being dead in your trespasses, verse number 13 of chapter number 2. 
That's your state before you receive Jesus Christ. You are dead as a doornail. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you deserve to die. But you know what? He has made you alive together with him. What? Amen, right? Having forgiven you, how many of your trespasses? All your trespasses, past, present, and future. How did he do that? He perfected you forever in Jesus Christ. He made you perfect in Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, I'm not perfect. How can I be perfect? And let me tell you why you can be perfect. Because there's no law being held up against you anymore. Christ is the end of the law. But look at the next verse. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. What's he talking about there? The law. It's been wiped out. Now, it's not wiped out if you're not born again. It's still hanging right over your head. It's not on the cross because you're not looking at the cross. you got to look to the cross to get that law pushed away from you. You don't want that law hanging over you because that law condemns you. And so having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Romans 6, 14, he says, you're not under law anymore, you're under grace. And because you're under grace, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, all things are lawful. Why are all things were lawful for you? Because there's no law against you anymore. There's nothing to condemn you. Amen. Great. If I've been born again, the law has become part of who I am. It's written on my hearts and my mind, so I don't need a law anymore. I know what's right and I know what's wrong, and when I do wrong, I'm, I'm sinning against myself. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because there's no law. The law's been nailed to the cross. And so, that's, so he says in verse number uh, uh, 16, he says, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding the festivals of the new moons or the Sabbaths, these things which are, are part of the law. They're just a shadow. The substance is Jesus Christ. He's the one who cast the shadow. And he's in you. And so he's given you the mind of Christ. And so you have the substance of the law being part of you now. Therefore, in verse number 20, he says, if you die with Christ... Uh, died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations, to the law? Why go back under law? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which concern things which perish with the use according to the commandments and traditions of man. See, under the priesthood, the, you were under law. And when you failed to keep the law, you slaughtered a bull or you slaughtered a goat or a dove. And, but, there, but, but that never really took away your sin because it, that never really changed you. You've got to change. God doesn't, God doesn't want sinners just having their sin paid for. He wants sinners to become children of God. He wants to transform you into a child of God. And so the Levitical priesthood could never do that. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Now back to Hebrews in verse number 13. Hebrews 7, verse number 13, listen to what he says. He says, for he, Jesus Christ, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe 
Now, where did the, where did the high priest come from? What tribe? Levi. He came from the tribe of Levi, according to the law. Where did Jesus come from? The tribe of Judah. So he could never be part of the Levitical priesthood. He had, he's got to be somebody totally different. That's what he's trying to show these Jews. He said, for he, Jesus Christ, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. He says, for it is evident that our, our Lord arose from Judah, of which the tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. I mean, the, Moses spoke of only the Levites being part of the priesthood. And yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, according to the order of God, who has come not only according to the law of the fleshly commandment, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, not according to the Mosaic law where they inherited their position, but according to the power of endless life, according to the power of God. He is God. He's an infinite priest, and so he can take care of infinite sin. I mean, go back to Hebrews chapter 3. I mean, and look at, uh, I believe it's in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's our great high priest. For he testifies, look at, look at verse 17. For God testifies that Jesus, in Psalm 110, is where he's quoting from, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Levite priest inherited their position. Jesus got his position directly from God. He was appointed high priest by God. All right, now, going on with me. Hang on with this. It's going to get good if you hang with me. He says, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. What's he talking about there? There's an annulling of the, an annulling of the law, of the Mosaic law and all of the commandments. You're not under law. You're under grace because of its weakness and unprofitableness. If salvation could have come through the law, Paul tells us, it would have come through the law. But it, the law could never save us. All the law could do was condemn us and become a tutor that leads us to Jesus Christ. And so he says, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. It didn't, it didn't help anybody to get into the presence of God. On the other hand, there is, is, a, is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We could never draw near to God through the law. Why? Because Paul, will, or the author of Hebrews, will tell us in chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see God. Without absolute perfection, no one will see God. And the law can't make any of us perfect. Uh, none of us perfect. Not, and, and for 1,500 years, the Jews were living under law. And they got their chance. They had this law. They had the sacrificial system. They had the 
Levitical priesthood. They had the temple. They had all of these things going for them. They had the oracles of God. They knew what was right or wrong, and they tried their very best. And you know what God had to say about it when it was all over? In Romans chapter 3 and in Psalms number 14, he says there is none righteous, no, not one. None. None of them ever made it according to law. No one ever achieved perfection according to law. And without perfection, no one will see God. So how many of them according to law drew near to God? None of them. You can't draw near to God through the law. There's no way you can. And so he says in the next verse, he says, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests, they have become priests without an oath. What he's saying there, God didn't swear that they would be priests forever. In fact, Aaron didn't live forever, did he? His sons didn't live forever. None of the high priests live forever. So, so God never swore they would be priests forever. He never gave an oath of any sort. They were, they were appointed priests through the law. God never swore any kind of oath according to their calling. But he did for Jesus. For they, having become priests without an oath, but he, Jesus Christ, with an oath by God who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. Now, we know two immutable things about God, don't we? We were told in the book of Hebrews. He cannot break a promise and he cannot lie. And so he swore somewhere in eternity past, he swore you are my priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, according to the order of God. And then he says in verse number 22, he says, for so much more has, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. By so much more than what Abraham, or, or, I'm sorry, Aaron could ever do, or any of his descendants could ever do, or the sacrificial system could ever do, or the temple could ever do, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety, sure thing, of a better covenant, an infinitely better covenant. Now, what's he mean by so much more? What did Jesus do that was so much more than Aaron did? Well, I'll tell you what he did, and we're going to get to that as we come to the to the coming chapters, but just to give you a preview, go to, to, uh, to, let's see, I'm trying to find the verse, chapter 9, verse 12. Now here's what the so much more. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, the blood of God, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption for you and me. You see what he did for us? You see what Aaron, obviously Aaron could never do that for us. None of the priests could ever do that for us. The blood of bull and goats could never do that for us. He went into heaven with his own blood for us. Theosomatos, the very blood of God, so that he could be a surety for us of a much infinitely better covenant. What does he mean a better covenant? He's talking about the new covenant. Is the new covenant better? Amen. You better say amen to that one. 
You don't want to live under the old covenant. You know, that's the sad thing. There are a lot of Christians who try to live under the old covenant. Man, you've got an infinitely better covenant. You want to see your better covenant? We'll get to it next week, but let me just preview it for you. Go to, go to the next chapter and look down at uh, verse number 10. Chapter 8, verse number 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and then write them on their hearts. They don't need the law anymore. It's part of who they are. And, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach us teach his neighbor or none his brother saying, Know the Lord. You know, I don't need to tell you to know the Lord if you're a born-again believer. If you don't know the Lord, you're not a born-again believer. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sin and lawless deeds I will remember no more. I don't care what you've done, what you're going to do, what you're doing now. He doesn't remember it anymore. He's not going to remember it. He chooses to put it away. And he says a new covenant he has made. He says... In that, he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. It's gone away. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Put the old covenant away. You're not under law. I hear these preachers get up, and there's a, there's a real popular preacher, one of the most popular in the United States. That every, almost every week he's got a chart with the Ten Commandments on how you're under the law. Yeah, you better, you're still under law. No, you're not under law. That old covenant's been put away. Now, that doesn't mean the law's been put away. It's still a tutor to bring people to Christ. It still condemns lost sinners. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the law's been put away. All right, now, he, he keeps going. He said, also, there was many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. For he, because... He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. God swore that. God swore that his priest, he made an oath, that his priesthood would last forever. He didn't make that oath for Aaron. Actually, from the time of Aaron until the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there were over 300 high priests. What happened to every single one of them? They died. How many sins did all 300 of them take away? Zero. None. Only Jesus Christ can take our sin away. Now, this is a refrigerator magnet verse, this next one. This is the one you want to you remember and hang on to. Therefore, therefore, since he is our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, according to the order of God, and because he's established such an infinitely greater covenant, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who flee for him to refuge, he said earlier. That's the way I like to put it. Those who come to, come to God through Jesus Christ. Look at that last part. Since he ever lives, I like that translation a little better, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. What's he, what's he mean, the uttermost? That we're saved to the uttermost? What's the uttermost? The uttermost is the greatest amount or degree possible. 
You are saved. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are saved to the greatest degree possible. You know what that means? That means if you're born again, he can't save you any more than he's already saved you. He can't love you any more than he already loves you. You've been given the divine nature. He can't give you anything greater than the divine nature. You've been perfected forever. He can't make you any better than perfect. You are his child. You can't enter into a better, better relationship than to be a child of God. So he saved you to the uttermost. What does it mean that he lives, ever lives, to make intercession for us? Well, a lot of people say what Jesus does, and a lot of denominations teach this. What this means is that when we sin, he's there to hear our confession and take away our sin at that time. That's wrong. That's not what that means. You know, that's not, what, that's not what the author of Hebrews is trying to show us at all. I mean, if you look back to chapter number 1 and verse number 3, go there for a minute. Chapter number 1 and verse number 3. This amazing statement. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, he is God, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Look what it says. When he had by himself, Purged us of our what? Sins. How many sins is he talking about there? All our sins. That's what we saw in Colossians chapter 2. Past, present, and future. When he had purged us of our sins, he paced up and down because he knew we were going to sin some more. Is that what it says? He sat down. He sat down. Because when he was on the cross and he had finished the work of dying for our sins, he said, it is finished. There's nothing left to do. All your sins have been purged. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Can he do any more than that for us? Can't do any more than that for us. So what, is, I mean, what does it mean? He ever lives. You know what that means, he ever lives? That means his purpose in living. He ever lives to pray for us. You know what he's praying for you and you know what he's praying for me? That all things will work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's an amen there too. Because let me tell you about God. When God prays something, can it, will it happen? Well, you better believe it's going to happen. He's going to make it happen. He has all the power in the universe. So if you're his child and he saved you to the uttermost, I don't care what you're going through today, he's praying that it's going to work out for your good. And you better believe it's going to because he, all his prayers are answered. Yes, yes, and amen, amen. It's going to work out for your good. He lives to pray for you. And then he says, in the next verse, he says, for such a high priest, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy and harmless and undefiled. Harmless. Isn't it good that God is harmless? Man, I wouldn't be a harmless God if I was God. 
I would wipe out a lot of people fast. Harmless. Undefiled. I certainly wouldn't fit that one either. Separate from sinners. You get that? That's why you'll never see God. Without holiness, you'll never see God. He's got to take you and make you where you're not a sinner anymore. That's the only way you'll ever see God. And he's become higher than the heavens. Higher than the heavens. You know, I read the other day an article, some of you might have seen this, that the astronomers have found a galaxy 13 billion light years from Earth. Now, light years are way beyond anything you'll ever get to in this life. 13 billion light years they've discovered a galaxy. And if you went to that galaxy 13 billion light years from Earth and you took your telescope with you, you could find another one 13 billion years further. And you could go to that one and you'd find another one 13 billion years further because I have this hunch that maybe the universe is created by an infinite God that the universe might be infinite itself. That's beyond our mind, but, but it sure looks that way. But you go as far as you can go into infinity and you still haven't reached the height of God. He's higher than the heavens. You want a perfect Definition of transcendence. You hear that term transcendence, that God is transcendence. He is way beyond all creation. That's it right there. A perfect definition. Listen to what he says again. He says, he says, if I can find it here, he says, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from us. He's totally transcendent from, from us. And has, he's become higher than the heavens. But you know what? My Bible says something else too. That God is not only transcendent, holy other, he is also imminent. That means he's right in our very midst. I mean, James in chapter 5 says the judge stands at hand. The Lord is at hand. The judge stands at the door. Paul says in him we live and move and have our being. He's right there. So he's imminent. But, and, and I don't think he's talking so much in terms of, of linear height here is he's talking about God's holiness and his glory is way beyond anything we can possibly imagine. But you know what? In Jesus Christ, he gives you that glory. He gives you that holiness. He gives you the opportunity to come into his very presence. Look at what he says next. He says, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's sin. I mean, why did, why did Aaron have to offer up sacrifices? Because he was a sinner just like the sinners he was doing the sacrifices for. But Jesus isn't a sinner, so he doesn't have to offer up any sacrifice for himself because he is holy other. He is higher than the heavens in holiness. And it says, for first his own sins and then for his people. For, he, for this he did once and for all. Grab that. Once and for all, he purged you of all your sins. Once and for all, he died on a cross. He's never getting back up on that cross again. Once and for all, he died for your sins when he offered himself up on the cross. When he made the decision to go up on that cross. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he offered his son upon the cross. He gave him as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. I can reconcile that real easy. 
because Jesus is the everlasting Father. He himself offered himself up on a cross to die for your sins. Now, let me tell you what else we learned from this passage. He did it once and for all. When everybody, anybody wants to tell you about transubstantiation, you ever heard of that? Where when you're eating of the wafer and you're drinking the wine at communion, that somehow Jesus is still on the cross and providing you with more flesh to eat and more of his blood to drink. Hey, he's never getting on that cross again. He died once and for all. That's a, that's a, that's a particular point in time where he died. He's never going to do that again. He did it once and for all. And so, he's, so there's no such thing as him providing more flesh and more blood for us. When we take, partake of the bread and we partake of the wine, we do this in remembrance of him. And we honor his presence in our life. We honor the fact that he's opened the door for us to have a relationship with him, with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing when we come to communion. And, in, and symbolically, we are partaking of his flesh and we are uh, partaking of his blood because we say it's his blood and his flesh, his broken flesh that allows us to have this relationship with God. And then finally, verse number 28, he says, For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Wait a minute. He's been perfected forever? He's always been perfect forever. But when he died on that cross, he completed his work. He perfected, he was perfected forever in the sense that he was the perfect sacrifice for you and I. You know why he was perfected forever? Well, look at chapter 10, verse 14. So that you could be perfected forever. For by one offering, you have been perfected forever in Jesus Christ. You're as perfect in God's eyes as he is. You are as perfect in God's eyes as he is. If you're less perfect, then it's because he's less perfect because your perfection is in Christ. He's the one who was the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who has perfected you forever and saved you to the uttermost. Oh, what a Savior. Hallelujah. Oh, what a Savior. Now, as we head on in the Hebrews, it's only going to get I don't think any better than that, but it's only going to get better and better. He's showing us some great truths about our Lord here. Some great truths. Some really good stuff. But here's what I want to do as we finish up and just take a few minutes here. I want to make sure you're getting this. Make sure you're understanding what he's trying to show you here. So I've got a little illustration I'm going to give you. And you can... Listen to it if you want. But Let's say you're out in a yacht. Now, that, that puts all of us out of this illustration right away because none of us have yachts. But let's pretend you have a yacht and you're out in the ocean, out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. And your yacht sinks 
in 10,000 foot of water and you can't swim and there are thousands of sharks surrounding you and you're thousands of miles away from shore, you're in deep, deep trouble. But let's say you get some help. Some people come along to help you. First of all, Mr. Law comes along. He sees you out there drowning, and, and he sees you out there with all those sharks about to eat you up. And you know what he says to you? He says, he says hey, you better be good. You better really be good. You better be good at fighting sharks, and you better be good at swimming. Wait a minute, I can't swim. I can't fight sharks. Well, you better be good. You better be good, because if you're not good, you're going to die. Well, you're not good enough, are you? There's no way you're going to make it. So what, is the, what has Mr. Law done? He's condemned you to death. That's all he can do for you is condemn you to death. Well, he goes away, and then the next guy that comes up is Mr. Humanist. And Mr. Humanist comes along in his boat, and he looks out at, at you out there, and you're swimming, trying, and you're splashing, doing your best to stay afloat, and the sharks are about to come in on top of you, and he throws you a book out there, How to Swim. <laughs> then he throws you a book out there, and he says, How to Fight Sharks. And you're reading as fast as you can both books, but you're too far away from shore, your water's too deep, even if you learn to swim, you're not going to make it in. And even if you can fight a couple of sharks off, there's thousands more to kill you. Guess what, the, guess what the humanist has done? He's condemned you to die. That's exactly what he's done. But then next comes along in his boat, Mr. Example Savior. They're the what would Jesus do crowd. You ever see people wear what would Jesus do bracelets? You can't do what Jesus did. Get that, get that in your head. They, he comes along and he says, he sees you drowning and he sees the sharks fighting you. And so he jumps in and he swims all around and, he, and, and shows you how to swim. And then he beats off all the sharks and, and then he, he leaves and says, hey, you've seen how to do it. Now you do it yourself. Well, this Mr. Uh, example Savior has powers you don't have. He can do things you can't do. And so as soon as he swims away, you can try your best to follow his example, but you're not going to be able to follow his example because you don't have the powers he has. And this, it's too far away from the shore and the water's too deep and there's too many sharks and you're going to die. So he's condemned you to death. Well, the next guy comes along and this is Mr. Conditional Savior. And he sees you in the water and he sees you drowning and he sees all the sharks and, and he pities you. He looks down on you, and he pities you. And he says, I'm going to save you. You know, I'm going to save you because I love you. And he pulls you out of the shark-infested waters, and he puts you on his beautiful yacht from heaven. And he makes you part of his family, and he tells you we're going on a long journey to a wonderful place. But then along the way, you do things he doesn't like. And you say things he doesn't like. And he quits loving you. And so he takes his boat back to the place where you were at, and he throws you back in the shark-infested waters. There are a lot of people that believe in a Jesus like that. And then there's Mr. Conditional Savior's brother. He comes along, and he sees you drowning. And he sees the sharks about to eat you. 
And he comes along and he pities you and he looks at you and he loves you. He says, I'm going to take you into my yacht and I'm going to take you back home with me. And, and it looks like everything is done and you're going to make it. But you do something really stupid. You jump back in to the shark-infested water. And you know what he does, Mr. Conditional Brothers, uh, Mr. Conditional Savior's brother? He says, I don't love you anymore because you've done that. I don't pity you anymore. You shouldn't have gone back into those shark-infested waters. I'm going to let you die. Now, a lot of people believe in a Savior like that. Let me tell you about my Savior. My Savior. He sees me drowning. He sees the sharks about to eat me. When I was dead in my sin, he saw me. And he pitied me. And he loves me. How long does he love me? To the uttermost forever. When did he begin loving me? When he chose me in him before the foundation of the world. He had his eye on me when I was a shark myself. He had his eye on me. He knows I don't have the power to swim back to shore. He knows I don't have the power to fight the sharks. And so not only does he pull me out of the water and he puts me on his yacht, he cleans me up and gives me his power. And he tells me, I'm going to take you home to be with me forever, to live in my presence forever. And you know what else he does? He adopts me as his son. He says, I'm going to make you my own son, a joint heir with me forever. And then he gives me more power. So much power that if I jump back in the water, I can swim with the sharks. And I can swim as far as I want to swim. I can even mount up on wings like eagles. And he'll never let me drown. Never. Because he has saved me to the uttermost. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we're so blessed to be your children. We're so blessed to know that you've saved us to the uttermost. There's no more you can do. Or no more. And we're grateful for that. And we're grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for his broken body because that's the only way, Lord. And if we've run to you for refuge, we know that we're, we're safe. Lord, we thank you that you live to intercede for us. And Lord, I know there's some people in this room today that are struggling with some, some trials that seem bigger than you, but they're not, Lord. And I know that you're, gonna, you're praying for them and we're praying for them. And Lord, I know that they're going to get through those troubles because of who you are, because you're God. And when you pray for something, it happens. So, Lord, just give everybody in this room rest and peace in you 
I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray.